Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to the book of Acts, and to Acts chapter 3. Our reading is on page 911 of the Blue Pew Bibles, page 911. We're going to read Acts chapter 3 from verse 1 down to verse 16. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, down to verse 16. is page 911 of the Pew Bibles. And as we read, we remember that this is God's word to us. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the unrighteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 3. Uh, you'll find the passage we read earlier on page 911 of our Pew Bibles, page 911, uh, Acts chapter 3. Uh, one of the difficulties of being a minister is that you have to preach on certain passages or topics at certain times of the year. I'm really just talking about Christmas and Easter. Every year we go back to the same old story at the same time of year. Uh, the difficulty is that it can be hard to think of different angles. Uh, I've been a minister now for about six or seven years, and I'm already conscious that I've got, all being well, potentially another 40 Christmases and Easter's to preach through. The Bible is rich and diverse, but when it comes to Christmas and Easter, we end up turning to the same old passages, to the early chapters of the Gospels for Christmas, to the end of the Gospels, and one or two New Testament passages for Easter. What can you say about a story on which everything has already been said. Now, to be honest, I know the complaint is a bit of an overreaction. The reality is that we need to remind ourselves about the stories of Christmas and Easter because 
They're both so fundamental to the gospel. If the virgin birth of Jesus is not true, the gospel collapses before it begins. If the resurrection of Jesus is not true, then we have no hope as Christians. But what can you say about a story on which everything has already been said? This morning and this evening, we're going to have something of an alternative Easter. We're not going to look at passages that we normally look at. We're going to look at passages that upon first reading, you might think it's Easter Sunday, Stephen, and you didn't read an Easter Sunday passage. You maybe thought that about Acts chapter 3, but it's helpful for us to listen in on what the the first Christians had to say about the resurrection of Jesus. In particular, we need to listen to Peter, who had a lot to say about the resurrection. The, The book of Acts is Luke's second volume, and he writes about the work of the early church. In Acts 3, we read of Peter healing a beggar, someone who had been crippled from birth. The beggar was well known to many for his prominent begging spot at the entrance to the temple. He would have been there most days. But on the day he met Peter, he didn't get changed. He was changed. He asked Peter for some some alms, for some money, but he received legs. And as you would know, the healing became a sensation. Very quickly, large crowds gathered as the word spread about what had happened. Peter begins to address the crowd, but he doesn't focus on what just happened. He focuses on the resurrection of Jesus and says that that is what the healing of the man is pointing to. In the middle of his sermon to the crowd, Peter gives us an Easter three-pointer, a three-point sermon about the resurrection of Jesus. In Acts 3.15, he says, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Peter says three crucial things about Jesus that make sense of the time in which his hearers find themselves. His points also show show us what the resurrection means for our salvation. His three points are simple. You killed him. God raised him. We saw him. Peter's three points will be our three points this morning. Let's think about the first one. You killed him. Peter doesn't want the crowds to focus on what he had done for the beggar a few moments earlier but on what they had done to Jesus a few weeks earlier. You killed him, he says. The crowd was was marveling at the healing that had just taken place, but these were the very same people who had demanded Jesus' crucifixion. In these three words, we have all the different forms of Jesus' rejection, all the different forms of Jesus' rejection that he faced in the final hours of his life. You know, when you, you know when you double-click on a, on a folder in your computer? Imagine that our points are folders. For each point, we're going to double-click on the, on the statement to see what opens up in front of us. What opens when we double-click on you killed him? Well, a few things. J- Jesus was condemned by the Jews. In the Jewish religious court, Jesus was asked point-blank whether he was the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. He didn't duck the question or attempt to sidestep it. It was a direct question, and he gave a direct answer. He said, I am. He said, well, what he said was very clear. It was also a loaded answer. The name that we give someone to call us by indicates the kind of relationship we want to have with them. Someone new comes to church, and I tell them that they can call me reverend. It implies that I'm not intending to have a very personal relationship with them. I'm dealing with them in a very formal way. If I, could, if I say that they can call me Mr. Kennedy, it's a bit more personal, but there's still some distance. But if I say, call me Stephen, it's all much closer. Friendship is, 
is on the table. One of the most precious truths for God's people in the Old Testament was that God had given them his personal name. He had disclosed himself to them personally. They were on first name terms. We can read all about it in Exodus 3 when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. What happens in that story is that God gives Moses his personal name and he says that he can use it. The name is translated as the Lord in in our Bibles. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. More literally, though, it is I am. Jesus knew what he was doing when he answered the Jewish authorities' question about his identity. He was claiming the the divine name for himself. The court didn't need to deliberate long after his answer. The high priest spoke for them all when he condemned Jesus to death for blasphemy. First, Jesus was condemned by the Romans. Second, he was condemned by the Jews. Second, he was executed by the Romans. The Romans sentenced Jesus to death. Pilate may not have regarded all this as anything more than the internal squabbling of the Jewish nation, but the claim of Jesus as, uh, as being a king, it was a squabble that affected him. Stability was Pilate's top priority. Keep this part of the Roman Empire ticking, keep things under control, but here was a situation that could spill into societal unrest. Crowds of people wanted Jesus dead. Pilate saw an opportunity to sort the mess out and also to gain some political ground. Barabbas, a terrorist, would be released and Jesus would be executed. The formal charge against Jesus was sedition. He was claiming to be king and was inciting people to rebel against the authorities. Jesus wasn't just rejected by the religious leaders and the law courts. He also experienced spiritual rejection. In each of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, the details of his physical sufferings are very sparse. The whole process of crucifixion is summarized in three words. They crucified him. We're spared the unpleasant details of what this would have involved. We're not told how Jesus felt at each unbearable stage, but we are told what he said. In the thick of the darkness that fell while he was on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't need to know the blow-by-blow account of how Jesus' body tore itself apart. What we do need to know is given to us in these words. Jesus is rejected by God. And this takes us to the heart of his death. His suffering wasn't ultimately physical. It was spiritual. The son was rejected by the father as he bore the penalty of our sin. Condemned by the Jews, executed by the Romans, rejected by God and buried by the disciples. Burial is often the most difficult moment in the process of grieving. The final confirmation of Jesus' rejection is his physical burial. He was laid in the tomb of a prominent politician, Joseph of Arimathea. The body is buried. It's the end of the story a final confirmation of the words, you killed him. Every other human story has ended at this point. When you get to the corpse being led to rest, there's nothing more to say. In a biography, this is where the final reflection begins. In a movie, this is when the final song plays, the screen cuts to black, and the credits begin to crawl up the screen. Peter has only reached the the conclusion of his first point though, and so have we. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. You killed him. That's what Peter says first of all. You killed him, God raised him. That's our second point. Like our first point, there's a a wealth of information in this short statement. 
Peter has unpacked Jesus' rejection, and now he guides us through what Jesus' resurrection means. The story of the resurrection is the story of a great reversal, the ultimate reversal. The one who was condemned is raised to life. On the third day, the grave is empty and Jesus is seen. And as we double click on on God raised him, we find out more about the identity of Jesus. The resurrection tells us that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Because God raised him, Jesus is powerfully declared as the son of God. The Old Testament looked to a time when God would install his great king, the one who would reign forever. Psalm 2 describes the king's coronation and, and speaks of international opposition to him. Despite the opposition, God declares, you are my son. But the king's enthronement is not how people imagined. In Romans 1, 4, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection powerfully declares that Jesus is the son of God. What Jesus claimed before the Jewish court to be the son of the blessed one, a claim that that seems so ridiculous as his lifeless body was lifted down from the cross, is now demonstrated to be true. The resurrection shouts Jesus' credentials at us. Peter was the first person to preach an Easter sermon. We can read it in Acts chapter 2, the chapter before the one we're looking at this morning. And his conclusion to that sermon was electrifying. He finished in this way. He said, Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's the resurrection that supports Peter's conclusion. Peter's reasoning is clear and unanswerable. He says that Jesus was far greater than the great King David. And his point is that the resurrection shows Jesus to be the true Christ, the true King. The man charged with sedition is shown to be the ruler that God himself has appointed for the whole world. Jesus may not be popular in the public square. A Western society and culture doesn't like Jesus unless he's in a crib and even then there's a bit of a debate. He's like a mobile phone and cash not to be flashed around in public. It's fine to believe in him, but you're asking for trouble if you start displaying him where everyone can see him. Keep him to yourself, stick him in your pocket, and don't take him out until you get home. That's what, that's what our world says. But the resurrection doesn't give us that option. He left the grave not to stand in some discreet street corner, but to take his throne in heaven. The resurrection declares that he is the son of God and the king. Because God raised him, we can also say that Jesus is the savior. Those watching the crucifixion were well aware of the irony. The man who had said that he was everybody's savior is dying on the cross, utterly helpless, People said he he can't save himself. What kind of savior is he? But there's a double irony at work. It turns out that he won't save himself because he is the savior. His crucifixion was to be the means by which he did save others. had Had he chosen to save himself, he would have been no savior to anybody else. Back to Peter's preaching, at this time from a later sermon in Acts 5. He says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, By hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus is described as as being hung on a tree. In Jewish thought, to be hung on a tree and to be nailed to a cross meant that you were under a curse from God. The manner of his death showed that Jesus was accursed. He was paying for sin, 
but not his own sin. His death is the means by which forgiveness will come to God's people. Jesus is the Savior, and the purpose of his death is indicated by his resurrection. The curse is overturned, and Jesus' life is restored. If we are in any doubt that the cross did its work, the resurrection is where we need to look. The payment has gone through. His sacrifice has been received and accepted. He really is our Savior. He didn't come just to to teach us and live for us, but to die for us and to be raised up for us. The Son of God, the King, the Savior, the author of life. Death is final. When we say goodbye, we don't expect to say hello again, but not in the case of Jesus. In In his case, the natural process of death was arrested and he comes through death to new life. Listen again to Peter in Acts 3.15. He says, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Jesus died. Billions of people have. Great leaders, philosophers, teachers. But Jesus passed through death, and no one else has done that. His relationship to life is unique. He is above death. It cannot hold him or contain him. His resurrection shows him to be the author of life. Since Lynn and I were married uh, just uh, nearly eight years ago, we've moved house three times. Uh, We lived in rented accommodation before moving to Bukna. And whenever we moved, we did lots of packing and so on. But the key moment came when we got the keys to our next home. And the whole process of moving depended on that part, getting the keys to the house. Peter is telling us that through his, re- through his resurrection, J- Jesus is, is jingling a bunch of keys before us. The keys to life. All life is his and he owns it. He is the author of life. And if we want to have eternal life, then he is the man we need to see. You killed him. Jesus was condemned by the Jews, executed by the Romans, rejected by God, buried by the disciples. God raised him. His resurrection declares that he is the son of God, the king, the savior, and the author of life. You killed him, God raised him, we saw him. That's Peter's final point. And it is to emphasize that all of this happened in public. God raised Jesus on the stage of human history. Peter's comment here is revealing. He says, to this we are witnesses. Jesus appeared to his followers after his resurrection. We have the accounts of this happening in each of the four Gospels. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lumps all of them together and tells us that there were six occasions when Jesus appeared to a variety of people. He appeared to Peter, to the 12 disciples, to a crowd of over 500, to James, to the apostles, and finally to Paul himself. Paul is in no doubt about the importance of these appearances. They form part of the Gospel on which believers stand. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The Jesus in whom we believe died, was buried, rose again, and was seen. And what the burial was to his death, the appearances were to his resurrection. The death of Jesus was physically attested by his burial and his resurrection was physically attested by his appearances. His burial proves he died. Being seen proves he rose again. 
Each of the Gospels makes this clear. Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection on a number of occasions, and yet the disciples had not believed him. Where were they on Easter Sunday morning? Not at the tomb. Nowhere near the tomb. Hiding under a rock from the authorities. But Peter says, to this we are witnesses. Jesus was publicly seen, and the historical record in the gospel and in Acts speaks for itself. You killed him, God raised him, we saw him. Peter's Easter three-point sermon. It's a good one. The points are short and sharp and easy to remember. You killed him, God raised him, we saw him. All very memorable, all very simple. The the thing about those points are that they speak to Peter's context. That that is what what Peter, in essence, was saying to those listening uh, around him. And we need to tweak them slightly to fit our context, to fit our circumstances, to fit our church family here in Buknata, to fit our individual lives. You killed him. Well, we can't change that point. That's still true of us. The clear testimony of the Bible is that it was your sin and my sin that held Jesus on the cross. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every heart is deceitful and wicked. You killed him, I killed him. God raised him. Well, that's still the same too. The resurrection really happened. The proof is before us in the scriptures. The proof is also there for us in that the earliest Christians came to believe against all the odds and against all expectations that Jesus had been raised from the dead. You killed him, yes. God raised him, yes. We saw him. No, we didn't. You and I here this morning did not see the events that took place 2,000 years ago, but we will see him one day. And on that day, he will condemn those guilty of sin who haven't repented. That's the thing. Jesus' death is sufficient for all in that anyone who believes is covered, but it's effective for some because not everyone believes. So what are you going to do with Jesus this Easter Sunday morning? You killed him. You weren't there. You you didn't hammer the nails in. You didn't beat him. You didn't flog him. You didn't mock him. But your rebellion is the reason he died. Your rejection of him your sin against him, you killed him. God raised him. We can argue this one back and forth. What about this? What about that? Here's the nub of it. People saw him after his resurrection. Loads of people. Not just a few close friends, not just a few mates. We're talking about hundreds. And then a few people wrote about what happened after he rose. We can't really understand it because we have weak and finite little brains But God raised him, and you will see him. You really will see him. And he will have a conversation with you on that day. And it will be a really simple one. Stephen Kennedy, did you trust me? Yes or no? Unless you're relying on what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection, then you'll be separated from him forever. But if you trust him, You can live in light of the resurrection, the fact that those who believe in Jesus will never die and will experience life forevermore with him. That's Peter's Easter three-pointer then. You killed Jesus, God raised him, we saw Jesus. 
to fit our context, it's nearly the same. You and I killed Jesus. God raised Jesus. We will see Jesus. And we need to trust him before that great day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Peter's sermon, which tells us so much about what Jesus has done for us and about the power of his resurrection. We confess to you this morning that we killed Jesus, that it was our sin that held him there until our salvation was accomplished. We praise you that you raised Jesus from the dead though, and we thank you that one day we will see him. We will stand before him face to face and we will bow in worship before him because he has saved us and has given us new life in him. But we pray for those who aren't yet trusting in the Savior. We ask that they might come to trust him for the first time today. We pray that they would realize that one day they will meet Jesus and that they need to trust him before that great day. Father, help us to live in light of the resurrection today on Easter Sunday and for all of our days too. And we ask and pray all these things in the Saviour's name. Amen.